The following program was produced by Community Producer. The content, views, and opinions expressed are the sole responsibility of the Community Producer and do not reflect Malden Access Television, the City of Malden, or your cable provider. MATV welcomes your comments. Call us at 781-321-6400 or email us at access at matv.org. Good evening, and welcome to Malden 02148. I'm your ghost, not my your ghost, but your, your, your person doing the show this evening. And as you notice, there's no guests, and uh, there's a several reasons for that. But the, the point is we have a lot of uh, subjects to cover, both local and otherwise, and I think you'll find it interesting. And uh, therefore, um, I just wanted to start off with something very important to all uh, people that live here in Malden, whether you're a, a resident in a property or you're an own homeowner, those of you that um, are homeowners uh, re would have received, if not today, then you'll sometime this week, a notice about the first winter storm, and not the one that we just had, but rather a notice indicating that once there's a storm like there was uh, this week, there's an automatic trigger that goes into effect regarding how your parking uh, is allowed. And as a practical matter, there's a lot of streets in Marlin where when it's not wintertime, you can park on either side. But obviously what happens is in order to effectively clear the streets of the, of the snow that falls and for other reasons in terms of safety, uh, there's occasions that uh, depending on where you live, you may only have parking on one side in the winter, which is most of the residential area within the city. And um, so uh, the city of Malden, they did include in your uh, water bills uh, this past week a reminder that um, when you have the first snowstorm of the year, which happened this week, is when your uh, one-sided parking starts in many, many of the streets where you live. And uh, this year it happens to be on the odd side, which coincides, of course, with the fact that it's 2019. But th there's a couple of elements to this that are extremely important. Um, if you have tenants, and if they're relatively new, um, or if they didn't have a car previously, they wouldn't even be aware of the parking situation in terms of winter parking. So it's important if you do have tenants, or you have people that live in property that you're involved with, that you remind them of the parking situation of a particular street where you live. And uh, the, the reason is it's not fair to your uh, other neighbors who may have occasions to uh, try and get out of driveways when um, plows have had to go around cars because of the, of the parking illegally. But in any event, it's odd parking, uh, outside parking this year, and um, it, the winter ban has started with the snowstorm that was... Uh, effective this week and beyond any of that um, there's also and I brought this up in, in some past shows there's a sweeping uh, system too which is important and that's I think in recent years it's improved a lot 
Um, it always has room for improvement. And sometimes it doesn't do the job maybe that they would like to see done because people either forget to leave their car on the outside in, in the street park and on the on the day that the city sweepers come by to to, to do this uh, sidewalk sweeping. Uh, um, and so, again, um, you should check and find out to make sure, you know, there are signs now posted across the city reminding people about the about the sweeping. But, again, I, I know the area where I live, uh, sometimes I'll get up on the day. Our sweeping is the third, third Wednesday, and um, it ends up that... Um, I come out of the house and um, it winds up that um, people, maybe they have guests, and that's another reason you have to remind people that uh, whether they live there or they have overnight guests or uh, people visiting that stay over, it's important that they don't leave their car on the street when the um, sweeper is going to come in. Now, what does happen, sometimes you do that and nothing happens because either they don't have the uh, people to write the tickets or it's a situation where uh, they, they're writing them in another area from where you're located and therefore you get the pass, so to speak. But as a practical matter, if you, if you pay attention to it and, um, and, and, and adhere to the rules, everybody's going to be ahead. The streets are going to be clearer. Uh, you're not going to get any tickets. You're not going to make a uh, an issue with maybe someone's a tenant, a, a new new to the city, someone that's a visitor that stays overnight, or perhaps even someone that uh, all of a sudden uh, got a car that didn't have one when they first moved into the house, and now they they, they leave the their car on the street and they get a ticket. And uh, so you got to be careful about that. And the the city has available information about the frequency of your of your uh, sweet sweeping of the streets where you live. And uh, in most cases, it's it's once a month. But there are areas in the city, commercial areas in particular, where it's done on a daily basis. Other areas it's done on a weekly basis. So, um, but in more likelihood, you're in an area where it's done, perhaps once, mostly at, at, at twice, but generally once a month. And uh, sometimes you, you can be in a situation where you get used to parking out front, or the, all of a sudden you have more cars that are conveniently put in, in in your yard, and therefore people sometimes leave the cars or they come they come uh, home later than usual, and there's people that leave earlier in the morning than they do, or they leave it on the street. They come out and they get a ticket. It gets expensive. It's $50. So, again, um, be mindful of that. Remind the people that live in your home or in the, in your property that there are rules that should be obeyed and they should be uh, paid attention to. And But especially... Uh, the the outs on the street parking um, in the winter time because um, as you drive around I think as, uh, between the the city plowing and and the rain and and the weather that warmed up a bit uh, for the most part the snow wasn't a problem there's still snow banks around but uh, but the streets are down to the pavement and people had a, an opportunity to clear off the sidewalks which is, again is part of the efforts on, on the city officials to get the sidewalks so people can walk in some degree of safety. So again, that's the winter parking and the city sweep. Keep that in mind and pay attention to that. There's a couple of um, public announcements I'd like to make of local interest, I think. You know, sometimes you have a, a, a hard time, uh, difficult time, entertaining your children all the time, especially when they're going to be home from school You get and you have a Christmas holiday coming up and you have a February vacation coming up and the, sometimes the weather being what it is, uh, and your own schedule, it's not so easy to, uh, particularly for the younger kids to be catered to, and at the same time, uh, get yourself uh, 
ensure that they're, they're where they ought to be and they're in safely. But the, the, the library does um, have a lot of programs available. They have a movie nights for the, for the public, and they also have um, on Thursdays um, a, a preschool story time, and that's from 10.30 in the morning to 11.30 a.m., so that's an hour. That's on Thursday. It's a drop-in program for children ages 3 and older featuring uh, long picture books, songs, uh, rhymes, and a and simple craft. So for the real youngsters, it's a chance to get in, be indoors, mix with other children, and uh, be supervised uh, at a time when uh, they'll have an enjoyable hour. At the same time, you know they're in, in an environment that's best for them and good for you as well. The, the other item I'd like to just touch on also uh, locally is the... Um, the Malden Reed will hold its 10th anniversary year celebration and fundraiser at a one-day holiday pop-up bookstore and more from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on December 7th in the lobby of the new Malden Center apartment community in Malden Square at 190 Pleasant Street. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the uh, Malden Reed, this has been a very successful program. It was initiated, as indicated here, 10 years ago. And over the years since then, they've broadened and expanded the, uh, the type of books that are uh, recommended and promoted, and also the age group. So you have not only adult books, but books that are recommended and discussed for children of various ages. And... Um, it's oftentimes an opportunity to, to, for you maybe to have a, a, a book that you've been recommended by a, a, a group that evaluates the different ones that are suggested, and on that basis, the one that's picked usually is one of interest to the public, and that would give you a chance to, to get an advance notice on a book that you, th you didn't maybe think about or know about well enough. But in order to promote it, they have this fundraiser once a year, this year it's at what's going to be the new City Hall area down here on, on Pleasant Street. It's on the 7th, which is this coming weekend, and um, th th it has a lot of things going in. It's, it's going to include um, the 2020 book selection and some of the major upcoming events. And also they're looking for volunteers, so therefore it might be a chance if you're not familiar with the, uh, or if you're uh, familiar with hadn't thought about getting involved directly, that would be a, a chance to learn more, more about it. Uh, um, the, the holiday pop-up bookstore and more event is a special opportunity to celebrate all 10 years of Malvern Reed, books selected for adults and children. This will be the first opportunity to purchase the 2020 selection, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and the 2020 companion books for younger readers. In addition, all the book selections throughout the years will be on sale as well as the, com the companion books. And um, this is uh, books by local authors will be, will be there as well, creative gift wrapping, and that's available for purchase. And there's an arts and crafts for children and, and then with a small charge for the material. So, again, it's a day out for the children. It's a top, an opportunity for the books. And there's a photo booth as well to take pictures with the 2020 books and other props. By the way, they're also going to have a, 
a, a wall summary of all the books that have, that have been uh, recommended over the 10 years this has been in existence. So again, um, it's a day out, it's an afternoon in the, in the community, it's, it's for children as well as adults, and there's a, a lot of options when you show up to, to not only learn about um, the books for the next year, but the ones that have been recommended in the past. And if you think it might be of some interest to you, it'll give you a chance to participate in, in this year's um, effort by the Malden Reed Group. Um, this is the, really the first uh, time I've done a show. You know, you do a show once a month, and um, something come along, then you can uh, grasp and touch on while you're doing the, uh, your, your next show, which is a week away. But the way things are today, uh, things sometimes get stale, and then other things happen along the way that gets more prominent attention when you do your following show. But um, the election was in November, which is about a month past, and uh, it, it was kind of interesting. Um, there has been some discussions and uh, verbally and also uh, articles in the newspaper regarding the, the level of participation by the public this year in terms of the election that was here in Malden and the, the, um, the voting, the voters that had an opportunity to go to the polls of the total in the community, and it was obviously um, over 30,000 this year, it ended up under 10,000 participated, or about 27% of the eligible people voted. Um, that was a little surprising because it was a contested election for mayor. Usually that's a bigger draw than any other part of the uh, the, the officials that are chosen for uh, at the local level. Um, on the other hand, um, you, you, when you see that and you, you look back over the years, and there's been a couple of articles recently in the news, local newspapers about the lack of participation by the public. But you have to kind of also gauge what's here today in terms of the community versus what it was like years ago. And sometimes years ago isn't the best, and sometimes years ago doesn't always reflect the way things are today. But just to give you a quick digest, there were about 8,500 people voted in this year's election. And um, there were, again, if you if you look at the number, that would suggest that of the over 30,000, just about a quarter of the people took, a, took the time to vote. Um, there were some contested elections at the, at the, at the ward level. There were uh, a few contested elections on the school committee. And of course, um, there were three openings, as is usually by uh, Council Lodge. All three incumbents were running for election, and there was only four running, which again is is reflective of the times. Because in recent years, um, it's been, I can't even remember now the last time you had a primary for at large where you'd have to have at least seven people running. But um, when you're kind of trying to figure out what's wrong with the city, now you go over to uh, Everett. Everett, in my view, over the years has always been a much more political, more active uh, issue uh, community than Malden. Uh, although uh, there's a lot of similarities years ago, um, Everett had has a mayor that runs every four years, the same as we have in Malden, but this is the off year in Everett, and a lot of contested uh, elections at the local ward level and, and that sort of thing, but they only had 25%. And Marlin at 27, you say, well, that's still not a lot. Um, when I ran the first time for mayor, and that was a long time ago in terms of the calendar, because you think back, um, 
that's nearly 30 years ago. I just happened to come across some paperwork. I was going through some files at home. And at that time, in the primary, there were over 10, around 10,500 people voted in the primary. And that was at a time, I would say, uh, Marlin uh, census projects, I think, um, residents were approximate about 60,000 people. And I think at that time, there may have been a little over 50,000 in the city. So there's, when you think about it, um, 8,500 voted in this November, 10,500 at that time voted in the primary, and you always get a bigger vote in, the, in November than you do in September. And that was with maybe 10,000 less people. So you say, gee whiz, it really has changed the city. I mean, people just don't vote. Well, there's a, a number of factors in my view uh, when you look at it. At that time, uh, Malden probably was made up, um, there were Jewish people, there were uh, Irish people, and there were Italian people. There were obviously some other people that lived within the community, but I think I read an article that not long before that, about 40, almost 40% 40 of the people in Malden at that time identified themselves as being Irish. And so if you fast forward 30 years since then, you now have a situation where uh, it's estimated, I believe, that there's about 30% of the community is Asian. Now, the other factor, what prompts people to vote and what, pe what prompts people to stay at home? Well, the people that tend to vote, uh, people that have uh, identity with the community, homeowners, children in schools, um, businesses in, in the community, uh, perhaps employment within the community, all those kinds of things add up to um, a motivator for a lot of reasons directly or indirectly to affect their lives would cause them to, to get uh, out and vote. Obviously, the one other issue would be that um, in a mayor's election, which tends to draw people to voting, as indicated what I just mentioned about Everett, not having a, a mayor's election this year, um, if you have a heated contest for mayor, then you have reasons why people want to see a change. It could be city employees in various departments. It could be people with the unhappy with the school system, fairly or unfairly. could be people that are, uh, want to see changes within the community from where they because even if they're relatively new, they're in a situation from another place where they lived before coming to mall, and they decided, that well, what we did there is better than what's being done here, and I want to get involved. The next thing you know, you have uh, people looking for change of w w where the city's operating. But uh, in this year, I don't think you saw a, a huge groundswell of people that were looking for change at the mayor's office, and that was reflected in the final result. Now, whether you agree with some of the issues that were raised um, or defended on by the mayor's uh, uh, administration, and obviously one of the issues uh, sometimes always a school issue. There's a the high rise, you know, the developments of apartment complexes. There's there's uh, concerns with public safety. Although I don't I don't think that was a major issue in, in Malden this year. Sometimes it's issues that are, are local and within the community. So all of those things add up. But but one thing that is definitely different is the way people campaign. Neither candidate had had a campaign office. Uh, Senator Lewis ran last year, uh, excuse me, two years ago, um, 
for re-election, and he covers several communities, and he had a campaign office in Malden. Now, how much does that mean in terms of different uh, results? Well, the fact that you have visibility of someone having an actual office where someone, if they had a... Um, a reason to complain or to offer support or have a have a an opinion on an issue that was before this the the uh, the state house then that's the place to go you don't have to track him down with an email you don't have to try and uh, contact his office in Boston and work you know work through somebody else before you finally and oftentimes with a person having that many communities to to serve he's got a staff to cover some of those issues when the calls come in but neither candidate this year had had an office, uh, a campaign office, and th there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one of them, obviously, is that you have to, to have one. You need a lot of people to be there, uh, or at least the same persons to be there over over the course of the day. So that if someone wants to come by, they can come by. You have to be open at night. Um, and we're now living in an electronic age. And uh, interesting enough, when uh, I looked through some of the um, financial reports that were turned in for the campaign candidates, um, several of them had spent money on political consultants. And um, th that's, again, something that's fairly new. Um, years ago, people maybe had a, a, a trust group, people a brain trust, as it were, a, a people that had some insight into the pulse of the public and, and therefore they could maybe give you some suggestions or recommendations on how to focus your campaign or handle issues and uh, give you ideas on how you can reach out to people who uh, might be a prospective supporter. And uh, now today they do robocalls. Uh, you get um, uh, people uh, volunteer and they make phone calls. You also, of course, have the the emails, you have websites, and, and on and on and on. But that doesn't have necessarily a kind of a personal uh, type of um, uh, emotional response to, from the people that are going to ultimately vote. And one of the other factors could be that um, the current mayor, this was his third time he's running. He's been elected twice. He's served eight years already. Uh, this is going to be another four years with his reelection. And... Um, even sometimes the people that start off helping you when you first get to that level of, of, of government, um, the, uh, the original enthusiasm is still there, but maybe not at the level that, that uh, it was when you first ran and you were part of a, of a change looking to, for, into the future where Marlin was going to be directed. And in some instances, uh, unless you harness that, uh, people uh, end up saying, oh, well, he's going to get re-elected anyway, or he's going to win. He doesn't need me to do those kind of things uh, that I did, did, did eight years ago. And so, and maybe you do them this time, but you don't do them as often. Uh, I had people mention to me that uh, they don't recall receiving any anything in the mail from uh, the candidates. And I do know there was some door-to-door -door, uh, drops that were done, and... Uh, but there were no big rallies that I that, I, that I'm aware of, and uh, again, it's kind of a thing where, unless there's anger or people are looking for a change, a new candidate coming along has to have um, not only his own vote or her own vote, but you need to get a vote of people that are looking for something that they don't have now, doing the kinds of things that they expect government to provide for the for them. So. You need to get your vote, and you have to basically oftentimes have an anti-vote. And if you don't have both of those, then 
unseating as someone in office who, who on the surface appeared not to be, uh, uh, have a lot of people out to remove him or vote against him. And that was, that was um, reflected in the final results. Part of the other thing, of course, is that the, um, the spending of the money, you know, um, sometimes um, uh, people spend money and, and the results don't show in, in the final results. They don't win. Uh, and other times, um, even if they don't have the money, they have uh, volunteers that make the difference, or they have they have a platform of ideas that appeals to people. And it's a and oftentimes at the local level, it's a personal kind of campaign. And you have to present yourself to the people. You got to talk to them on, on a level that they can understand. And equally important, uh, reach them to see you as someone uh, who can do for them what they think the government should be doing for them. So. But a couple of quick things about the the, the, cost, the cost of campaigning. Um, the, the, the big spender at the, at between the two candidates for mayor uh, was the incumbent, but he, that's, um, again, some, uh, a lot of factors. Number one, he ran out of post four years ago, therefore whatever funding he had accumulated, uh, he had that available to him to start off with. And... Um, Gary Christensen, regardless of um, your, your viewpoint of the government here in Malden, he's not a candidate that, that's constantly out raising money for his campaign. He, in fact, for, for for someone who's been the mayor, uh, he, he's kind of easy going at it, and maybe sometimes he should move move more aggressively on that because sometimes I, I, I get letters and of solicitation from um, sometimes people outside the city who run for county offices or whatever, and some of those county offices are for six years, and um, certainly they're at least four years when they get elected, and they often run unopposed, but they have fundraisers once or twice a year, which, which seems a little over, overdone. But anyway, uh, but the amount of money spent by Gary uh, was significantly more than uh, was spent by John Matheson, but there was two reasons for that. And one of the obvious reasons was he had some carryover. More important than that, he also had more people contributing to him, and he was in a position to to um, finance a campaign at a, at a at a higher level financially than um, his opponent. Um, one of the other things that that I thought stood out was that uh, uh, there were uh, three incumbents at large running for re-election. One of whom, um, Craig Spadafora, in his report, he raised no money. And he spent no money. So whatever signs you saw him having uh, were there from uh, returned from other campaigns and other uh, two years ago or whatever. And um, the uh, he, if he had to do any um, mailing, apparently, which it was at a minimum, he must have had stamps left over from the last campaign. Unless, again, um, and this there was one final report that would have come in when I after these figures I have, but um, but that's an interesting situation, not raising and not spending any money. Um, the candidate topped the ticket, which is Debbie DeMaria, who's served several terms and been on the school committee prior to getting elected council at large. Um, she didn't raise a lot of money and didn't spend a lot of money, but she got over 60% of the vote, which is um, an exception. Um, I, I did... Uh, Again, going back with ancient history, I did five terms on the council, city council and at large, and uh, I would say the top vote getter my, during my tenure was Jackie Glenn, 
and I don't think he ever got more than 57 percent. Now, elections were more contested than usually you had at least five, maybe six. Some years you had a, a primary. But the fact of the matter is um, that uh, her getting over 60 percent is, is very impressive. The other thing is uh, Ga um, Craig Spadaforis, who I earlier mentioned, spent any money, didn't raise any money, and he finished second. He got over 50 percent of the, of the people that voted. And the third candidate, who was the incumbent, was uh, Steve Winslow, and uh, he raised the most and uh, spent the most and got reelected. And Jerry Leone, I don't have his figures, but again, he, um, I don't think he was in a position to raise a lot of money, and uh, therefore uh, that would have some effect on his campaign. But anyway, uh, the three incumbents got reelected. One of the uh, and Ward treated a very active election because a vacancy occurred because John Matheson was running for mayor. And two good candidates, I had mentioned that in my uh, prior program a couple of months ago, both of whom I think uh, would have been uh, uh, a positive effect on the city council. And I uh, hope that, uh, unfortunately, you only have one winner, but I, I do hope that uh, the, both of them keep active in the community and there'll be a future for both of them. Uh, even though only one is going to be serving on the council. But the winner in that particular one, um, uh, Amanda Linehan, raised about $12,000, which is a very large sum of money for a city councilor at a ward level. This is, it would be impressive even at a, um, uh, a council at large where you're running citywide. Um, the one in, in, in this instance here, just for comparison's sake, um, Steve Winslow uh, reported uh, raising about seven, almost $8,000. I think his final number was more above 10000 because, again, this was a, a, uh, the first uh, report before the end, uh, or the last one before the end. But uh, with um, Amanda, um, she raised 12000 and her opponent, who only lost by uh, less than 100 votes, she, she raised f about uh, 4000 I think. But uh, I guess... I don't know if you, you, that would be a measurement if she had raised 12, she had a one, but it was very close to election. And um, um, one of the, I noticed uh, one of the things that's happening now, which again is a different, it's a different time. Several of the candidates had contributions from unions. Uh, Steve Winslow, uh, Debbie DeMaria, Amanda, among others. And, um, Sometimes it was 200, sometimes 250, sometimes 500, and that swelled the amount of contributions they received. But uh, and one article did indicate maybe because of her professional career, Amanda had about 70 percent at that time of the contributions received outside um, the Malden. But again, that in itself only reflects the fact that maybe people who have dealt with her on a professional basis in a in her in her career. Uh, in non-political career, we're, uh, well, uh, we're impressed enough with her to feel confident that if she was successful, she'd be an asset to the, the city more than as a city council. So, anyway, that's kind of a quick overview of the um, of the campaign in, in this past year. But it doesn't really define why people don't vote. But I do think that if you, if you look at the makeup of the community, having changed as dramatically as it had over the years in terms of the diversity, that uh, and you know sometimes homeowner levels are are, uh, are a factor too because if you have a own a home and live in the home in the community you have you have a vested reason for being active. Well, I think the home ownership level in Malden is 
maybe close to what it had been years ago. So that isn't a factor that's going to make a difference. What does make a difference is that um, the people that own the homes now, in a lot of instances, they are new to Malden. Years ago, uh, when people sold homes, if you lived in the Edgeworth area, for instance, um, it maybe was sold within a family. Oh, if it wasn't within your family, then it was your neighbor down the street who um, you heard was going to think of retiring out of Malden or for whatever reason going to sell their home, and you had a, a child getting married, and they wanted to stay in the same area as, the, as, their, as their family, so they would buy the house. So the next generation would be still here. You don't see much of that anymore. The, when you look in the newspaper to see the sales in, in uh, uh, property transfers here in the city, totally different than... Uh, what it was years ago, but that's that's no different than Lynn, no different than Everett, no, and uh, no different than a lot of communities. It's the nature of the way things progress, or, uh, or they change direction. When Malden uh, brought the tea in, there were some pluses for that. Just the, fact, the convenience of the transportation of, uh, of trains right there, handy to you in two different choices. And now there's three, if you think of the other one, uh, where Sullivan's Care was before. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the people gravitated to the city at that time, used the public transportation, and they were people that didn't have cars. They were often, sometimes they were even people that didn't have a, have a strong grasp of English. But they But if they worked in a out of the area, they could count the number of stops and get to where they needed to go by taking the public transportation. So all of those factors. So when you look at the makeup of the community, you say, well, the 50-some thousand that were there years 30 years ago, um, for the most part, are not longer here. And when the people came after them, whether it was a, those people or the two sales that have occurred that same property since then, it resulted in a community that, and in many instances, is not the mall that we grew up with. And that in itself is not such a means it's not good. It just means it's different. And being different sometimes changes the way people do vote. So that's a, you can spend an hour on that at another time, but we're just going to talk about that much of it right now. I, um, I do have one kind of a, one article here which <laughs> talks about, uh, and, and it's very fitting, um, which, which which was going on with the uh, impeachment hearings, which I'm going to touch on after uh, uh, discuss this. But uh, Americans are going to church less often and uh, having fewer babies. Now, I don't think there's any correlation between the two on, on the surface, but the reality is those two th items have a big impact in the, the direction this country is going to go in years to come. And I'll, I'll try to give, give a, a little bit of information on that. The steady long-term decrease or decline in church attendance is confirmed by the most recent Wall Street Journal poll. Just 29% of Americans now say they attend religious services once a week or more often. This is down from 41% 20 years ago. At the same time, the share of Americans saying they never attend religious services has risen to 26%. Now, that's not... That's people that just don't affiliate it with any, any particular ch church or religion. Almost double the 14%, which was, again, 20 years ago. And, but, but, which is even more telling, though, is that um, the, uh, um, uh, among those ages 18 to 34, 
The raid says they had never attended religious services previously, was no different from the most of the population mix. However, now, 36% of people in that age group, 18 to 34, said they never attend church services. And uh, if, if it's that much now, then it would suggest, and it was uh, double, literally, more than double than what, what the rate was 20 years ago. And um, that group of people will be replacing the older people who will run out of t life uh, at some point. So that's, and there's a number of things that happen with that. Uh, beyond anything else, the revenue generated by the, the people that go to church today wouldn't be as le at the level it used to be because not as many people go. And if they don't go as frequently, in some ways they don't necessarily contribute in terms of what the way that their fathers and the grandfathers did, or the grandparents. Um, indeed, those who say they attended religious services at least once a week voted for President Trump over Hillary Clinton. Now this is another, which is not a not surprise, by uh, from 53% of the regular churchgoers voted for Trump and 29%, which is a, a substantial difference, voted for Hillary Clinton. And uh, indeed, Republicans are far more likely to say they attend religious services at least once a week. That's about 35% than the Democrats. Democrats don't go to churches often. They're under 25%. And uh, of course, the ones that go to, don't go to churches often apparently are more liberal, but that's another story we'll have to uh, think about a little bit. But even the, the Republicans' uh, church goes are dropping, which may have some impact on the 2020 election because that's a really the a, a significant portion of President Trump's basis. The other thing that's also a part of that is that um, the birth rate is equally dramatic and similarity profound for society. Uh, right now, the uh, last year um, hit a 32-year low for births, and um, from this is basically the childbearing, childbearing years from 15 to 44, and the um, the births have fallen in 10 of the last 11 years, which is again significant. Now that that's an enormous. Th uh, effect on the in, in economics of the country. And uh, when you think about it, well, what, is, what does that matter? Well, if you have less people born, there's less workers that are paying into Social Security, and yet you're having more people that will be going into retirement. Depending on that, the supplement will be their main source of retirement income. So have that as it is now, there, there's predictions that the Social Security fund itself is going to run out of money in, not, in the not-too-distant future. We've had that sort of a concern in the past, and, and um, the last time was a, of a serious consequence was with President Reagan when they, they, they did some changes which affected retirement age. People uh, had, were pushed back a little bit in terms of when they were eligible for the maximum under the retirement system. And there's also a bump-up, uh, there was a bump-up in um, contributions. So we have to start thinking in terms of when you end up having more people retiring than coming into the workforce, and then you turn around and you have less people putting money into the system, 
then either you have to, and I think that's more likely to happen, is the government creates taxes that are diverted from, uh, and the increased taxes will go to the support the cost of Social Security. So anyway, and um, there's also, um, it's not mentioned in the article, but there's um, um, less teenage pregnancy than there were in years gone by, That's which is a good thing. But uh, this is these are this group is would be unmarried uh, teenagers, uh, and some of them, uh, even though uh, it appears based on the studies that have been done that there's more activity among young people with sexual connections. But but there's there are less there are less uh, pregnancies, and uh, that would mean I think uh, either there are more abortions or they're more careful. But anyway, that that kind of gives you an overview and. One of the things that also is parallel to this indirectly is that in China, for many years they had a one one child um, philosophy in terms of family. Uh, the, the, it's the largest uh, country in the world in terms of population. I think there's 1.2 billion people in China, and uh, for a lot of different reasons, socially uh, uh, and economically, the government years ago, very, the communist government, very aggressively discouraged people from having children. Well, if you think about it, if you limit it to one child and there's, there's two people, over a period of time, you're going to have less people because uh, number one is you're only replacing a married couple with one child, and then on top of that, you have people that age out and pass on, and then so the, the population is going to decline. But the rev the other part about that problem, as I alluded to here, is that that's at the same time, that means that there's less people going in the workforce to generate the funds to support the people that retire, that are pensioned off or retire. So China is facing a more serious problem than we are, and that is that they're going to have um, far less young people working and far more people retiring because for years they limited uh, families to uh, one child, and uh, in some instances, uh, people made had more than one, but there were uh, restrictions and there were tax assessments for having more. There was social pressure. There was uh, a huge level of abortions in the country. And then sometimes there was uh, people that had um, uh, children and, and abandoned them because it was, there was a second child. But in any event, China is probably in a situation uh, from a financial pro uh, perspective in the near future uh, having a far more issues to deal with than we will, although we're heading in that direction because if you have less people coming into the workforce, as I mentioned earlier, then someone's got to pay the freight. And if it if it it's sold to the working, which it usually is, then that's, that means that they'll have to pay more. And what the results will be at that time, time will tell. But anyway, there's a couple of quick things I wanted to touch touch base with you on. Um, I noticed, um, and, I, and I saw it today in particular, I was on Salem Street at the t about the time the school got out, the high school, and uh, it's at times you're at, at light, sometimes you're in traffic, but uh, one of the things that I've, uh, I've been aware of is that when you watch young people walking uh, on the street, they oftentimes don't pay attention to the traffic, whether it's stopping at the at the beginning of a, of a, a street exit or entrance to see if any cars are coming in either direction, or um, even paying attention to what the lights are. And uh, 
the the situation today was uh, you're now in, in some instances um, uh, you bundle up for the winter, and top of that, uh, in addition to that, you end up with kids who uh, have, uh, iPhones or whatever. They get their ears got clogged, and the result is they couldn't hear you anyway. But they walked right walking down Salem Street. They just walked across. Uh, the sidewalk into the street and over to the next uh, curb and never looked to see if the cars got from coming out of Pier Street or going uh, taking coming out of other streets and uh, part of that may be that um, they're so distracted because they're talking to their friends or they're listening to something on their iPhone or maybe just a habit of when they get to school they get crossing guards tell them when to come and come and go and then the result is they're out of the habit of protecting themselves and that may uh, be a reason why uh, sometimes we hear about accidents, uh, incidents with children on, on the cross in the streets. Say, gee, how could that have happened? Why were they broad daylight or whatever? And that's that may be a small part of the reason. The other thing is just uh, just for some statistics. Nine, almost a thousand people were killed in red light running crashes in in the United States roads in 2017. That's the most recent year of, of the total information. 20, 28% of crash deaths at signals intersections were caused by a driver running a red light. And 46% of those killed in crashes involving drivers who ran red lights were passengers. 40, 46% of the people killed were passengers or people in other vehicles. In other words, the driver of the car that ran the red light survived, but his passengers didn't, or the, or the car's uh, other driver didn't, or passengers didn't survive. And that's very telling, because everybody's in a rush today, and sometimes you, uh, and you have that delayed red light too with some people, and uh, no, no right on red in some instances, and people disregard that. I, I was uh, heading down to, <laughs> to Linden today, and the traffic had backed up on Eastern Avenue as Lynn Street merged with Eastern Avenue. And uh, there's, a, there's a do not enter on the right-hand side across where Robertson's uh, Variety Store is located. And the driver in front of me took a right on a do not enter street, went down the end, and he was cutting around to get out to uh, the highway behind um, where the, the Golden Banana was, or not the Golden Banana, but one of those uh, places that uh, right there next to the Walgreens. And I thought to myself, when I looked down the street, I, there was no other cars coming in towards him. Maybe that's why he did that, but the, the street's fairly long, and he'd come out to Lynn Street. But at the same time, it wouldn't be unusual for people to be coming down there for their own reasons, whether they lived in the street or they were cutting through on Lynn Street. But anyway, that was uh, one observe that I made today. But the other thing is, is rather common, people not use directional lights. They change lanes. They take. They 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 turn right off. They drive. So one uh, last night, it was in fact it was dark at the time. Uh, the man put his. He was ahead of me. He put his directional lights on when he was pulling into his driveway. But he didn't put them on before before that. And, and you know, in the in the in occasion when you have weather as existed uh, the last couple of days, could be the could be black patches on the street. Could be a lot of things. If you people not paying attention because they're, they they could, they probably still using the cell phone or their iPhone on the while they're while they're driving. That's why the, those kind of accidents happen. There's a, another thing that people should pay attention to that I wanted to talk about very briefly, and that is that um, ch changes are coming to the way we fly. At least is how we get to we get on an airplane. Beginning in October 1st next year, which is less than a, a year away, October 1st of 2020, 
adult travelers will no longer be allowed to use a state driver's license to pass through airport security and fly anywhere in the United States unless it is a read ID. A real ID is a state-issued license or identification card that meets minimum federal security standards. Among them, applicants must appear in person and provide multiple documents as proof of residency and identity. And that could be gas bills, light bills, that sort of thing. Generally, a star at the top of the card will confirm that it is a real ID. You can obtain a real ID at any time. You don't have to wait until you renew your license. Check with your state licensing agency for specifics, including the cost. The federal law applies to anyone over age 18 and extends to federally controlled sites such as courthouses, military bases, and nuclear power plants. But real ID is not mandatory. You can still operate a motor vehicle without one, and other forms of identification such as passports and military identification cards are acceptable at airports. So anyway, uh, not everybody has a passport, and um, it's not quite the same as what they're doing in another country with your voice. They're going to get your um, activated voice, and then they're going to be able to follow you around. You don't even know they're after you. So anyway, that's the, the stuff I wanted to talk to. And uh, very quickly, just to... Um, there's a name that's well-known in Malden among some of the older residents, but uh, Frank Stella. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe his, his son that was a doctor that had an office right there in Main Street in, uh, in Malden near uh, Oak Grove. Oh, excuse me, uh, Bell Rock. In the late 1960s, Frank Stella began a series of what is called protracted paintings. Huge canvases, often boldly shaped based on geometric forms, he drew from motifs in ismatic uh, art. They are jarring, at least to the community of Afghan, Afghan God, New York painters for whom Stella had become a, a leading light. They were bright, playful, welcoming. Everything that painted from a certain act had become determined not to be. This is what building up to here is, let it never be said that Stella followed the crowd. The artist who grew up in nearby, in nearby Malden was in town this week, that's the, the town of Boston, to have a replica of Damascus Gate, which is variation two, one of his protracted pieces installed on a building in the Seaport District. And actually is at 60 Seaport Boulevard. The piece commissioned by Boston-based WS Development with Mount Marianne Boski's gallery is a warm welcome home for a Boston-bred artist who cut a unique path to the global art world. Interesting. And he's still alive. Stella down to 80 has become one of the most important artists of the 20th century, less for his allegiance to any particular movement and for his gift for originality and reinvention, his black painting from 1959, among, it goes on from that. But anyway, there's someone who's local, half the world wouldn't even be aware of it here in Malden, and he's, he's uh, well, well, well known and uh, would be in a position to be uh, welcome at any art discussion by those that are interested in 
more than the the pastoral stuff you see um, still still life. But anyway, there's a lot going on uh, locally. Um, but more important than that, there's more things going on on the nationally, and that has to do with the uh, impeachment hearings, and uh, with transit now from. Uh, from one committee in the Congress to the to the Judiciary Committee, and now they started the hearings today. It's what is interesting is you can get um, almost a solid block of Republicans suggesting that there was no uh, impeachable uh, issues involved. You get the Democrats who, who maybe in some degree uh, don't go fully into the, the the impeachment process, but that almost without exception, each party represents two different points of view. Uh, I just caught a little bit on TV today, and um, apparently the Democrats had three people who who uh, explained legally why it was impeach, uh, impeachment deserved of, of offense, and you had the Republican bring forth one professor, a uh, law professor from Georgetown University, who said it wasn't. So now we'll get, we, we keep going. Um, how is it, you say, gee whiz, you get, if you're a Democrat in the, in the Congress, you're for impeachment. If you're a Republican, you have reasons why it's all a sham or you follow whatever the president is saying about it. But um, it's certainly the type of thing that's real serious. It's going to go on for a while. Uh, apparently what the indication were in this past several days was no, no, no decision is going to be made until after the holidays because it would, the timing wouldn't be so good to be impeaching the president as a Christmas present to, uh, to some people who don't want him in office. But if if you do a quick re walk down memory lane, in the election of 2016, uh, Donald Trump was elected president, and he got three million votes less than his opponent Hillary Clinton, and. If, for anybody that was aware of the system as it exists in America, the Electoral College dictates who is uh, going to be the president by the plurality of the Electoral College, and it's a weighted kind of count on the on the voting benefits of each state depending on a number of factors. You do get a, a larger representation for population, but that isn't the only criteria, and um, you don't have to go back too far in time to... Uh, the election with uh, Al Gore, where if he had carried Florida, and again, he had more votes than Bush in that election, he would have won the election. And and Ralph Nader was a, was a factor, and he was a third-party candidate. And uh, I think, he, if I remember right, he got about 90,000 votes in Florida. Well, if some of those voters had voted for uh, Gore, he would have been the president. And if he had been the president, we probably wouldn't have gone into Iraq, and who knows what would have happened since that time. But, you know, you can't rewrite history. But the reason I, uh, my observation about the uh, the impeachment process is uh, I just find it uh, very, very difficult to understand how just because you have a D beside your name, it appears you're going to be voting for impeachment, and if you happen to have an R, that uh, you can't justify in your own mind that there's anything he that the president Trump has done that would justify his being removed for office, and one of the uh, rationales is that well, let's leave it to the public to make that decision next November. Well, aside from the from the reality of the situation as it currently exists, and then the Constitution, which is really the reason you have to kind of look at this as a serious issue uh, and beside it and use that as the guide. 
is that uh, if you have a candidate who is uh, either in your mind committed a, a nonfeasance, malfeasance, uh, high crime and misdemeanors or whatever, to suggest that the answer should be resolved by a vote in the following election doesn't make any sense. The purpose in having some restrictions on a, on a, on a, on a candidate who is a, an becomes an incumbent and uh, whether it was Nixon or whether it was um, other people, uh, Johnson after Lincoln, um, although that was kind of a, sh a sh that says another story to it. But um, you really can't, in my view, and I think that's the trend uh, of, of, the, of the populist thought, you can't just say, well, we'll have an election and decide whether you, you, let, the, let the people decide. It's not a referendum issue. It's a legal issue, and it should be decided the way it's being processed. Um, couple of things that come to mind is, a, and I haven't watched all of the, I mean, uh, they had 170 some odd hours, I think, of total hearings uh, with 16 different witnesses uh, or people that came, uh, that, that were uh, interviewed or testified at that uh, initial phase. Um, there's an, there's an, an expression um, that's probably out of date and it doesn't deal with bees and, and but wasp. And a wasp, it can be a, a uh, a little insect, or it could be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And to some degree, if you looked at the makeup of this the other committee, that's almost what it was. The All of the Republicans, they had, uh, I think there was one woman congresswoman that was uh, among the Republicans. And other than that, everybody else, uh, for the most part, looked the same. When you look, flipped over to the Democratic portion of the, of the hearing section, you had people of of different colors, different shades of color, different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. So uh, whether it's fair or unfair, it would appear that in some fashion, by default or by the philosophy of the government that they pursue or articulate, that um, ever since Franklin Roosevelt was elected, which is almost 100 years ago, the makeup of the Democratic Party shades of colors or ethnic background or cultural differences are more likely to be a, a D and that the Republicans, as you saw on that panel that represented them in uh, in the hearings that have just concluded, uh, don't look anything like the people that the Democrats had on that panel for the most part. And what, what, what that says about America, I'm not quite sure, but what it suggests in one sense is that um, th th there's a a broader opportunity as a as a person seeking elevation to public offices. If you if you if you're not a wasp, that you run as a Democrat, and that's my that's my history lesson today. With one other thing, uh, President Trump, when he was offered up his campaign, he was going to drain the swamp. Interesting enough, Chris Collins, uh, a, a Republican congressman from New York, and Duncan Hunter, a congressperson from California, uh, recently pleaded guilty this past week, both of whom were uh, found guilty of, of uh, one was for inside trading, the other was uh, abuse of a campaign contribution. Those were uh, two Republican congressmen were the first to endorse Trump for president. So I don't know if he's draining the swamp or not. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next month. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.